0: This morning in our study of God's clock, we come to 7 o'clock, conversion. We finally get something to do besides sin. At 1 o'clock we saw creation, God made it all. At 2 o'clock, man sinned. And since then, God has been doing His work behind the scenes to prepare this remedy for our sins. He had it in the plan, but at 3 o'clock we saw the incarnation, Christ coming to earth. At 4 o'clock, the atonement. At 5 o'clock, the resurrection. And at 6 o'clock, calling and regeneration. So we asked the question this morning, what makes you a Christian? Well, I gave my life to Christ. That's good. That's 7 o'clock conversion. But what happened before that? According to the Bible, you might say, God gave Christ to your life. And we're going to try to tie what we had last week in calling and regeneration together with what we're going to be doing today at 7 o'clock. Now, we mentioned last week that if you want to offer evidence or a defense of the doctrine of the Trinity, this would be a good place to do it. At every point of doctrine we have seen the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit involved in what was going on. Today we're talking about conversion. We're reading from John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, I will never cast out. This is Jesus speaking. John seventeen two. For you, the Father, granted Him, the Son, authority over all people, that He, the Son, might give eternal life to all those you, the Father, hath given Him. So we see God, the Father, gives a people to His Son. And now we move to John 10. You'll find a lot about this in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ laid down his life for us. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The Father gives a people to His Son. The Son atones for those people. And then we come to the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, the last part of the verse. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The King James will say the washing of regeneration. It's the same thing, the new birth. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, You must be born again. And it's very clear in Scripture how that birth takes place. Did you have anything to do with your physical birth? I was there, but I don't remember anything about it. My mother was taking care of most everything, but the Lord just knew it was time, and all of a sudden here is a baby. And God makes that clear in John 1, verses 12 and 13, as we have an analogy between physical birth and spiritual birth. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You might say, which were born not of man, not of man, not of man, but of God. And then there's another interesting analogy that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Now listen, he's referring back to the creation. And he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that's from Genesis 1, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's the analogy. He is speaking the creation into existence. In Genesis 1 and then the New Testament we find that he is speaking salvation into existence. Charles Wesley covers that well in the third stanza of his hymn and can it be very familiar to our congregation? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Then in Romans 2, 29, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So we see the Father gives a people to His Son. The Son atones for the people. The Holy Spirit moves us from the natural state to the enabled state, so that we are able to understand the gospel. It's not just foolishness to us. And then comes conversion. And you can see that there were some seed planted on the good soil, and the tree springs up and there is ample fruit on the tree. Remember that Christ is the hub of the wheel, union with Christ. And then we have the different spokes that we talked about last week, election, predestination, effectual calling, regeneration, repentance and faith, justification, sanctification, uh, adoption, glorification. Now, the order is not so much chronological, this, this, this. It It is logical. Some things obviously had to happen ahead of time, and some things happened before the foundation of the earth. Now what does your life look like before you are converted to Christ? Isaiah fifty-nine seven. Their feet rush into sin. You see a track man here who is running in a direction toward sin. Then Proverbs eight thirty-six, all who hate me love death from Proverbs eight. Now, it may be a passive hatred of God. We're not saying that everybody is just angry and blaspheming God. Some people just love themselves. And they don't have time for God, and they're not interested in God. But we see from James 1.15, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So if I'm on a path of sin, I am moving toward spiritual death. We're all moving toward physical death, but those people that are on this wrong path are moving toward spiritual death in the opposite direction. Even though I may be very religious, uh, as the Pharisees were, I may um, talk about God, I may think that I am a believer, but unless I have a converted life, I'm going to be finding out that I was moving in the wrong direction. Now, what does it mean to have a converted life? 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, our runner is going exactly in the opposite direction. Psalm 42.2 My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Do you have a thirst for God this morning? I can remember sometimes when I was a boy that I was just not very thirsty for God. Why, do we got to go to church again? We go to church every night this week. We used to have special meetings back in those days. And I just wasn't thirsty for that. In fact, if the truth were known, I was probably thirsty for some things of the world. Now we come to the first stage, we'll call it, of conversion. First stage of conversion. Isaiah 55, 7, familiar passage. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Now, we're told in the New Testament that Christ came for a purpose testified the truth, various things, but the angel of the Lord said, in Matthew 121, She, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now if I'm not turning away from sin in my life, then I have missed the point of three o'clock, the incarnation of Christ coming the first Christmas, And I've missed the point of Good Friday, the atonement, at 4 o'clock. I just didn't get it if I'm not turning away from sin. Now, it may be a halting process and I may stumble along the way. But the first part of conversion means that I see my sinfulness and I'm desiring to turn from that. Repentance in our day, I would say, is a forsaken concept. It's all over the Bible. And even when the word repent is not used, the concept is still present there. Repentance is not penance. It's not a performance that you do to make up for your sin. There's nothing you can do to make up for your sin except go to hell. The Roman Catholic Church would say that you can lose your salvation if you commit a mortal sin after baptism. But through faith and penance, you can gain it back. Well, I would say faith is very important and repentance Not just something that I do to show my contrition for my sin. That may be appropriate at some point, but that's not what does the job. It's what's going on in my heart. Of course, we would say if you really have salvation, you don't lose salvation. Repentance is not reformation. It's not changing the way you look on the outside. You can do that without Christ. You can take some self help course or go to some seminar, and you can come out with a complete makeover looking good, new attitude, positive thinking, doing all the things you ought to do apart from Christ. Now, repentance may result in reformation, and many times it does, but it's not just essentially an outward change. Repentance is not just sorrow for sin. It may include sorrow for sin, but that's not the essence of repentance. That, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Now we see Paul here speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he's telling them what they need to know for their flock there in Ephesus. Acts 20:21. 20, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance. Then we come to a second stage of conversion. And we're going to go back to Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. And then the last part of the verse says, and let him turn to the Lord. You see, repentance is not just a change of mind. Repentance is something that is going on inside, an internal heart change. We see in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 3, return, O faithless sons. And then in Ezekiel 33, and there's a lot about recognizing your sin and confessing your sin. And then we come right up to the New Testament, What is the first word of the gospel? If you come to Bible study on Tuesday night, we have talked about that. John the Baptist begins the gospel in Matthew 3, 1 and 2. It's kind of a tie-in with the Old Testament. And he says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus comes along in Matthew 4.17. He'd just begun His ministry. Just preached His inaugural sermon at Nazareth. They didn't like it too well. Decided they would kill Him. And He slipped off among the crowd there. But it says from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says in Luke 13.3, I tell you nay, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 11:20. then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then Luke 15 and verse 7, we've just had the one lost sheep coming in. And he says, there's greater rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons. And then we had the lost coin in that same passage. And he said, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who who repents and that's Jesus speaking about repentance and then the apostles follow up with the same message Mark 6 12 and they went out and preached that men should repent we looked at Acts two thirty eight, in Acts 17 30 Paul is speaking to the Athenian intellectuals at Mars Hill and the Areopagus and he says therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. It's rooted in the mercy of God. He could have just left us in our condition. But He tells us to repent and we're going to see that He gives us the ability to do that. Acts 20, 21, they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in God. So my turning from my sin, is part of my moving toward God to put my faith in Him. At least it looks to me like that's what the Scripture is saying. Now we have some examples of false repentance. Again, we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about false repentance. And probably a classic example would be Judas. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 3. Then Judas, when he betrayed Him, when he saw that Christ was condemned, repented himself in the King James. In the English Standard Version, he changed his mind. In the New American Standard Version, he felt remorse. And he brought the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priest and to the elders. And he said, I've sinned in that I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, hey, what's that to us? Take care of that yourself. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. Now there's an important verse that explains what's going on here. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, and it says this: "Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death." There are often many tears that are shed, but it's worldly sorrow, and it brings despair. And there is no hope because it is pain of mind rather than change of mind. It is change of purpose rather than change of heart. Oh, I was so stupid. I wish I hadn't done I'll never be that stupid again. I'll be a lot smarter the next time I come to rob this pack of sack or whatever it may be. This would be the repentance of the world that finally brings sorrow and death. But an example of true repentance. Peter, Matthew 26 and verse 75. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, when Peter was weeping, it was the real thing. Well, how do you know? How do you know that was any different from Judas? Because he produced something. This turning produced something in his life. It produced the fruit of repentance. And we'll see what the Scripture says about that. So we see from the Old Testament, David writing when confronted with his sin, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And here's the fruit. Luke 3, 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, if you do have a broken and contrite spirit, it's not like you're going to get out and work to produce some fruit. It's going to kind of flow out of that. What I mean is it will be evident in your life that you're not going that direction towards sin. You're moving this direction because you have a thirst for God now. Some examples of false faith. What if you discovered that you were just going in the wrong direction? What if my plan was to take a trip to California and I left at night because it'd be a little cooler and there'd be less traffic on the road. And so I'm driving along and I drive for many hours and I'm not paying much attention to signs along the way. And I get to the um, Achafalaya Basin and I'm just driving on across that big long causeway. And the next thing I get to is the Mississippi River. And I look did that sign say Mississippi River? I'm going in the wrong direction. Now at that point, what I just say, I don't believe this is the way to California. I believe that's the way to California. I might say that, but what would I do? I would turn around and start going the other direction. And there are a lot of people who say, yeah, I believe that there is a God and maybe I believe that I'm a sinner, but there's no turning around. They're just going in the same direction in life. Well, true saving faith is not just intellectual assent; It's not just a mental faith. A lot of times uh, we might see that. And here is a verse, James 2, 19. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That's a picture maybe of what we would call historical faith. The little girl is reading a book and she reads about the Christian pilgrims who founded this nation. And then she reads that her great, 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 great grandfather was a preacher. And so she figures, I must be a Christian because I'm in a Christian country. My family has been Christian. Kind of like the Pharisees. Hey, we're sons of Abraham. We don't need all this repentance and business. Uh, we follow Abraham, our father. This is kind of a, a mental faith. Historical faith. I would say that a person needs a personal relationship with Christ. It's not just that I believe that there is a Christ. I want to come into relationship with Him. I can believe in Ronald Reagan. I saw Ronald Reagan one time. I didn't get to shake his hand. But I wish I could shake his hand right now. But I didn't have a relationship with Ronald Reagan. There was no personal relationship with him. Then another kind of faith besides this historical mental faith. Many will say to me on that day, says Christ, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name drive out demons? Perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a sad, sad commentary on Judgment Day. This would be miraculous faith. Yeah, we had a mission trip, and a hundred people gave their lives to Christ, and it was wonderful. Well, that's great. You were there. You were on the mission trip. But what's going on down inside? We might be a part of all kind of miraculous things that are going on, but the question is Am I repenting of my sin? Do I have that thirst for God? Am I moving in God's direction? Now here's a different kind of faith. It's not true saving faith, Matthew thirteen, twenty. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once received it with joy. Here is momentary faith not that he had salvation and then he gave it up but he had momentary faith that was not true saving faith and since he has no root it he lasts only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word he quickly falls away we need to understand this parable of the sower and the good souls. Because Christ said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. You better hear this one because this explains it all. Here is temporary faith or momentary faith. John 2.23 Now this is interesting. John 2.23 Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Maybe it's a little miraculous faith mixed in there. Many believed in His name. But the next verse says, but Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. They believed in Him, but He didn't believe in them. What is He trying to cheat them out of salvation or something? No, it says He knew all people and He knew their heart. And he knew that it was not the seed on the good soil. Well, why didn't he just make everybody the good soil? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know that when the seed falls upon the good soil, there is going to be fruit produced. Listen to this one, John 8, 32. A beginning in verse 30. he was saying, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Jesus talking to a group of Jewish people, many believed in Him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in Him, If you continue in My Word, that is, if you hold to My teaching, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hallelujah. That was about uh, 3 o'clock that He was having that part of the conversation. Then it goes on a little further in the very same chapter, very same conversation, In verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now here is in one afternoon, one conversation, people believe in him, and then when they see what he's really saying, they want to kill him. Because it was not true saving faith. Well, we've had miraculous, we've had mental faith, Miraculous faith, momentary faith, and then we come to misguided faith. By the way, one more verse on the temporal faith. Galatians 1.6 I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, Jesus says to the Galatian Christians. They were exercising some temporal faith. Well, the last one is misguided faith or misinformed faith. There has to be content in your faith. 1 John 4, 2, and 3. Because you hear some people sometimes who say, well, what does all that doctrine stuff matter anyway? What does it matter that Jesus Christ really was fully God and fully man? Maybe He was just God in a man suit and He came down here and... Just did His thing on earth. You can't really hurt God. Well, that's important. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. It points to... Three o'clock, the Incarnation. It points to Christ being fully God and fully man. So we have to have some content in our faith. It's not just believe that there's a God. Well, yet which God is that? And which Jesus is that? There are many different Jesuses out there, as you've probably uh, discovered. So let's take a look at an example of true faith. Now, this is a real one. Saul on the road to Damascus. All of a sudden, the light comes on. Talk about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He got it. And he got it all in one dose. Sometimes it doesn't come to us like that. But there are some components here that we want to consider. Acts 22, verse 6. About noon, I came near Damascus. Suddenly, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I ask, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not fully understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I ask. Now, just quickly, we see several things here. We see knowledge, we see assent, and we see trust. Knowledge. You've got to know some facts. How many facts do you have to know? Well, you don't have, a, have to have a lot of knowledge because we're told that you have to be simple in your faith, becoming like a little child if you want to even get in the kingdom of heaven. Now, after that, after you're converted, you probably want to have a lot more knowledge as you learn more about God and what he's done. But you do, for knowledge, have to understand who God is, who I am, what my problem is, and what God's remedy is for it. And that's the reason we try to get that simple gospel of John translated into the language of the people of a tribe who's never heard the gospel. Because you've got to have some knowledge. But then I have to agree with the facts in my heart. That's not all there is to it. But I have to agree that it's true. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I have a scent, not just mentally, but in my heart. My heart is changed. And then there is trust. I'm trusting Christ. I'm believing in Him, but I'm trusting Him to rescue me. I don't just agree with the facts. I see that I need His work in my life. Trust implies that we trust somebody with something. I'm trusting Him with my life and my very eternal salvation. Now, if I'm witnessing to someone, I'm not giving them a doctoral dissertation on conversion, but as I understand what God has done for me, this brings great gratitude to my heart. So now we come to two sides of the same coin. One side implies the other. Sometimes it says believe in the Bible. Sometimes it says, repent. And some people are adamantly against this concept of repentance. And they would say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Yes, but something is implied there. And in Mark 1.15, we see both. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So one side of the coin would be Repentance. Now, I want to ask you, is repentance necessary for salvation? Here is Acts 17 and verse 30. Paul is still preaching to the Athenians there of the Areopagus. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. How can you get through the judgment without repentance? Now, calling on God, asking Him to forgive my sin, doesn't save me any more than if I have a heart attack. And I call the ambulance, and the ambulance comes. My telephone call didn't save me. It was the EMT guy in the ambulance, or the emergency room physician who put the paddles on and pumped me back up again. I didn't save myself by getting on the telephone, and yet the telephone was a part of, of that process that's kind of the way repentance is it's a gift that god gives but then we are active in exercising that gift here's another one second timothy 2 verse 25 those who oppose him this is someone who is teaching the word of god those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that god will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. God grants them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. So we have faith, we have repentance rather, and then the other side of the coin, which is faith. Listen to this verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, how could you ask God to forgive you of your sins if you're still hanging on to the sins? Certainly, there may be some stubborn sins that we have trouble getting rid of, but I'm working on that process. God's Spirit is convicting me and I'm asking Him to help me with those things. Now, let's do a comparison between faith and repentance. Acts 11:18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. God has granted it because it's a gift of God. And then Romans 2, 4. It's something that I do, but He grants me the ability to do it, even to see it. Romans 2, four, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? We say it over again: it's a gift, but you exercise the gift. Philippians 1:29, here's a gift for you: for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What? Suffering is a gift? Yeah, it's given to you in the behalf of Christ. Now, God doesn't suffer for you. He'll help you, but you do the suffering. You do the repentance. God doesn't repent for you, but He's the one that touches your heart to see the need for that repentance, I believe, is what the Scripture is telling us. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of of God now we have that verse memorized and we say it so much and sometimes we just pass over that it is a gift of God I believe he's saying salvation is a gift of God then Peter in Acts two thirty-eight. I think we looked at this one last week Peter replied repent what did that mean when he said repent the Greek tense of that word means a commitment to make a decisive and effective choice It's a command. Do this. Make this happen. Don't just go out there and try it out and see if something's going to come of it. Make it happen. Do it. It is a command. 1 John 3, 23. And this is His command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Repenting is a command of God. Believing is a command of God. Now here is Paul preaching to King Agrippa, and he says this in Acts 26:20, 20, "I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance out by their deeds. Repentance is accompanied by deeds. And then in James 2:17, in the same way, faith, by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Your deeds don't save you, but if you have true saving faith, some deeds are going to be flowing out of that, even as the fruit of repentance is going to be flowing out of true repentance. First John nine, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now the tense of that Greek verb means constantly or repeatedly. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church at Wittenberg. What do you think the very first one says? Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Well, why is that? It's because we continue to slip into sin i'm not pursuing sin i hope as a lifestyle if i am something's wrong with my faith but if i stumble i get into sin i get off the track it's going to be continual repentance here's number two on martin luther's list the word cannot be properly understood as referring to the sacrament of penance as administered by the clergy number three Yet its meaning is not restricted to repentance in one's heart. For such repentance is null unless it produces outward signs. That's interesting. In Martin Luther's day, they had a problem understanding repentance, just like we seem to have in our day. Repentance is not a very popular message, where it's in the church or anywhere else. Now, Martin Luther recognized something. He recognized that the way we grow in spiritual maturity, is we keep short accounts with God. We're in a constant state of repentance because when I'm in a state of repentance, my pride is put to death. My stubborn self-will is mortified. I'm humbled under the mighty hand of God. Can you imagine a proud person asking for forgiveness? Unless they're maybe just doing it tongue-in-cheek because they have to or something. No, if I have an humble heart, that's going to mean it's the real thing. You can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time He may lift you up. It's a lifelong commitment there in 1 John. We'll be repenting till the day we die. Colossians 2 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. The Greek word means constantly or repeatedly. Lifelong commitment. So we come to a summary as we close. What is conversion? I would say conversion equals the first stage, repentance, and the second stage, faith. And again, I'm not saying that we add something on to faith because we believe in faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. But I would say repentance is just the other side of the faith coin. It's something that just... I'm going toward myself or toward the world, and I turn and I go toward Christ. Conversion is a call of God. It is a command of God. It is accompanied by deeds, and it is lifelong commitment. Now as we close, let me ask you this morning, do you have a real thirst for God? Are you turning away from evil? If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in your heart, that may be some light coming in. He sheds light even in the hearts of Christians as we begin to see this procedure, this action, this deed, I shouldn't be involved in that. These thoughts over here, I should be turning from that. So as I lead us in prayer, this would be a good time to make the turn maybe it's the first time as you would really understand salvation conversion or maybe you're a believer but you see that there's some things in your life that are pulling you in the wrong direction now would be the time to turn by god's grace and the power of his spirit let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your blessing to us in that it is possible for us to repent. That you have called us while we were in the darkness. And you've moved our hearts to be able to see that we have sinned against the Holy God. And that we stand in the judgment without uh, Christ's blood in our lives. And that we need forgiveness for our sin. Lord, I would pray on this Father's Day that you might help us to examine ourselves, even dads, children, young people, mothers, daughters. Help us to examine our hearts. Lord, we we want to be honoring you in the life that we live. I trust that we do. And Lord, where we miss the mark, We pray that you would give us grace to turn from our sin and turn to you and receive that forgiveness that you promise to give. Lord, help us not to be surprised that we have to continue asking forgiveness because we do things that are not right in your sight. We pray that we might have a great compassion on other people who are struggling with sin maybe believers maybe not you know their hearts but we ask that we would continue to hold forth the word of truth the simple gospel and we pray that uh, we would be diligent in prayer to pray for others and then we pray that we might show others your love as we reach out to them We thank you, Lord, that you've said whosoever will may come, that you offer a universal offering of your love and grace. I pray this morning for someone who may be thinking about these things, that your spirit might empower them to do what you're calling them to do. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.